Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Evergetinos. And we are picking up this evening on page 202 with the second full paragraph. And if you remember the theme of this hypothesis is uh, avoiding entanglements in the things of this world. And even when they seem justified, uh, that there are often good things that we can be tempted to immerse ourselves that can draw us away from God in subtle ways. And in fact, these often can be the, the more difficult temptations for us, the things that seem to have great meaning, great value, uh, can pull us into a kind of frenetic lifestyle that drives out stillness or the opportunity for silence for us. And so uh, the writers here that we'll be looking at counsel uh, being attentive most of all to the providence of God, seeking always to discern the providence of God when things present themselves to us so that we aren't uh, necessarily drawn to everything that comes to us and comes down our path. Uh, the next uh, hypothesis that we'll be looking at has to do with uh, evil and virtue itself, that evil is easy, the fathers tell us, whereas vir virtue and the pursuit of virtue can be very demanding for us. And, uh, and so I think this is why we see so often uh, the saints being sort of suspect of the things in, in their life that come easily to them, uh, or where it seems too good to be true, as it were, or where the cross is absent from their life. And it's not that they have a negative outview or outlook on life. It's just that they, they know the reality of what sin brought to the world and that the cross is something that's ever present for us and that we're called daily to take up and carry. And so uh, we aren't to, to think that the pursuit of virtue is going to be something easy for us and or sustaining that purity of heart that we struggle to obtain. So again, we're picking up on the second paragraph on page 222. The Lord wants his own, therefore, to be healthy and free from material force that is manifest and from the force which is hidden in the soul, as well as from everything that he destroyed in the body when he became incarnate, as he himself said, abide in me and I in you. That which we do, in which case he abides in us through purity, namely mystical vision. It is impossible then for the soul to enter into the rest of the Son of God if it has not acquired the image of the king. For neither does the assayer weigh objects without value, nor does the king put such things in his treasury. So it is with the soul. If it has not acquired the image of Jesus, the great king, the angels will not rejoice with it. Jesus will cast it out saying, how do you enter here without having my image, which is love, as I've said? It is impossible for his love to abide in us when the soul seeks God, but is divided and loves worldly things. For just as a bird cannot fly on one wing, nor when it has some burden hanging on it, so also the soul cannot make progress in God when it is tied down to some worldly matter. And so, you know, at the heart of this and what they're saying is our being created in the image and likeness of God, uh, but also what we've received through his grace, what comes to us from the cross, 
that we are to be conformed to him in mind and in our hearts. And uh, there is no sin in God. And so our striving should be purity of heart above all things. And if we are to truly abide in him, then this is what we are going to seek above all things to, to emulate him, to imitate him in his manner of love, giving himself in love and in his obedience, his humility. And for us, this also means cultivating within us a spirit of repentance in particular. This is why I think he makes reference to the angels not being able to rejoice with us, that uh, when there is a lack of humility or the lack of this constant turning of the self toward God and away from the self and away from the things of this world, how is it they are to rejoice? And so even some of the smallest things uh, we are told here can hold us back uh, as with a bird that has one wing or is being held down by something. And again, this doesn't have to be grave matter or great things within our life. It can be the, these attachments that shift our, our focus away from God. And again, particularly in the context of this hypothesis, uh, it's those little entanglements. Uh, perhaps it's in certain relationships or certain kinds of work that distract us from God and keep us from being attentive to him that we get caught up in sort of the, the gossip of life, or we get caught up in the things that, you know, everyone uh, sort of acknowledges as being important or of having great value. Uh, in the next hypothesis, we're told, you know, that again, that uh, evil is easy, virtue is very hard to foster, and that we, are not going to find many people who seek to foster it in great depth in our world. And yet we are to seek them out and imitate them. And so often I think in our day-to-day -day life that the images that are held up to us to imitate are not necessarily those who are the model, model of virtue. And, uh, and so uh, again, not to become entangled even in the smallest of things, uh, so as to be pulled away from divine things. Nothing worldly, he goes on to say, can separate those who love God with their whole heart from his love. As the apostle says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there, there is nothing in this world that can separate us from that love unless we give, us, give it the power to do so. Uh, so nothing that afflicts us or affects us, uh, not, not even uh, principalities, powers, not death itself uh, can separate us from the love of Christ insofar as long as we keep our, our focus upon him. And that's the real difficulty for us to keep our, our focus upon him 
when there are so many things swirling through our, our minds and our hearts on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, there are a lot of good things going on in my life right now, uh, but a lot of changes and a lot of details to attend to in a very short period of time. And it becomes you know, easy. And this is often the thing that trips us up the most. It becomes easy to become overwhelmed by that and become anxious by those things. Uh, uh, and so then lose our attention uh, or lose our focus upon God. And so it can even be these good things that are uh, emerging within our lives at times that sort of swamp the mind and the heart. And we become so focused upon them that being overwhelmed, we become anxious and try to control those circumstances rather than uh, again, slowing things down, stilling the mind and heart, focusing upon God so that we can make our way through those things with a kind of peacefulness and joyfulness. So not allowing anything to pull us away from the, the love of Christ. Paul mentions here in the quote that we just read, just about everything that one could imagine that could pull us away from Christ. But often for us, I think in, our, in the day-to-day -day life, it is our anxiety and our stress that does it to us. You know, something that we can't see, but we certainly feel very deep within us. Paul. Do you have a question there, Paul? Or are you typing it up? There you go. Uh more than one Paul on the call because no sir I'm not oh you don't have a question your hand is no, up I'm, uh, okay. I'm sorry what I, do? Okay. I, I, I don't know the system very well okay. uh, sorry I no, no worries whatsoever <laughs> okay any thoughts about this little section I found it profound going through it uh, because of the emphasis, emphasis I think upon abiding in Christ and he abiding within us. And that this is at the heart of the spiritual life and what we want to hold on to. It's love that we are to keep as our focus. And it's, it's love that keeps us steady, I think, in the day-to-day the -day realities that, that we face. Again, not fear. Ambrose. Do you know why Paul, or you have a speculation why he includes life and angels as being possibilities that things that would separate us from God? <laughs> well, life, I think, would be sort of the circumstances of day-to-day -day life. And angels, I imagine that he has in mind, the fallen angels, demons, that would be, you know, the ones who would heighten our attention to those worldly things and draw us away from them. You know, certainly the angels of God would be those who would be drawing us closer to him and revealing to us the things that are ple God pleasing or the things that are divine. Uh, so, you know, even though he doesn't spell it out explicitly here, I think this is what they have in mind. All right. Number two. The same elder said, do not wish for anyone to ask you for advice or a word about this present age, nor should you pay attention to anyone who makes such inquiries. Keep your hearing trained continuously 
on those who talk within you, namely your thoughts, and beseech God to enable you to know which of them you should heed. For those who occupy themselves with vanities neglect to wrestle with the devil. And so certainly this means one thing for the monks and another thing for those living within the world. Again, the monks have entered into the desert in, in order to keep their focus upon God continuously. And so they, they aren't there to be advice givers or to be pursued by the curious, as we've talked about. And they are to protect that stillness and silence that they have left everything to obtain. Uh, for those of us, I think, living within the world, though, it still uh, applies to us in, in terms of the, the kinds of conversations that we enter into on a day-to-day -day basis, the things that we are drawn into that leads us then to neglect the greater conversation that is all often going on within our head with our own thoughts, you know, not the, the things that are, are people that people are saying to us. If we're focused upon all these things going on in the world or what's on the television, what's on the news, that we can lose track of the dialogue that's going on within our mind and in particular with our thoughts. And so we begin not to give heed to discerning whether those thoughts are things that come to us from God or if there are things that come to us from the evil one, or if there are things that emerge from imagination or memory. And uh, so again, the, the spiritual battle for us is primarily psychological and rooted within the thoughts, the thousands of thoughts that we have throughout the given day. And so where, where do we place our attention? And, you know, I think in our day-to-day -day life, you know, in our work, we have to engage others, certainly. But cultivating a kind of simplicity of life's stillness, a love of stillness and silence, uh, all these things are going to help us to be more mindful of what's going on internally. And again, these can be simple things. Uh, I recently came across a book called How to Live a Holy Life, written by... Uh, a patriarch who, who lived in the, I think it's the 1800s. And uh, these are some of the simple things that he deals with in terms of cultivating the, the kinds of realities in our day-to-day -day life that allow us to engage in this kind of asceticism of being more attentive to our interior state. And so when do we get up in the morning? What is it that we first think about in the morning? What are the first thoughts that we seek to uh, uh, get, uh, to, to have when we arise from our sleep? To, does our mind turn immediately to God? And are the first things that we do uh, have to do with, with prayer, say praying the Psalms? Is this how we begin our day so that it becomes the lens through which we engage in our work or our interactions with others? So, these are the things I think that help us cultivate what the, the fathers are speaking about here within the context of our day-to-day our -day life. And uh, so rising early in the morning, going to bed at a, a good time, you know, cherishing those times when we do find silence and not seeking to avoid them or distract ourselves from them.
Any thoughts about any of this so far? Okay. From Abba Mark. No man that warreth, says the apostle, entangleth himself with the cares of this world. He who wishes to conquer the passions while entangled in worldly concerns is like the man who tries to quench a fire with straw. When the devil finds a man needlessly occupied with bodily matters, he snatch, first snatches the spoils of knowledge from him. Then he cuts off his hope in God, just as one would cut off the head of a convict. So the evil one uh, is interesting here. He, he acts with a swiftness that we often lack, that he will seek. In, in any way to cut off our hope in God and hope in the promises of God that then weaken our endurance when we go through trials. And so when he sees us focused and overly focused, one would say, on bodily matters, concern with ourself, our image, our health, you know, all these things can, uh, I, th I think, take hold of our consciousness where we uh, become worried about everything in our day-to-day -day life. We become hypochondriacs on every level, that uh, everything fills us with fear that we encounter throughout the course of the day. Then, then the evil one, I think, picks up on this when he sees this kind of anxiety that is pervasive and that is ubiquitous in us. And when it sort of arises to a certain pitch, he doesn't hesitate to cut off that hope in God and make us doubt it and doubt it completely. Where is God in the midst of this? Why is God letting this happen? You know, how could the providence of God be tied to an experience such as this? And we often are slow to cut off the thoughts that lead us then to doubt God or cut off the thoughts that would lead us into uh, the kind of thinking that would lead to this ultimately. Ren, what are the spoils of knowledge that he mentions here? So let me find it again. Uh, he first snatches the spoils of knowledge from him. So it would be divine knowledge, the things that would be gained through uh, a life of holiness, but in particular purity of heart that allows us to comprehend divine things or that arise out of a depth of faith that allows us to know and comprehend these things. And when we become distracted with worldly things, is when we can then lose that purity of heart, that we expose ourselves to the things that give rise to avarice or anger or impurity, and then immediately lose that focus upon God. And that's when the evil one will act swiftly. And uh, this is what's so harmful about it, because in this spiritual life, it can be, you know, after much labor that that purity of heart comes to us or that vigilance where we are attentive to our thoughts or feelings. And when we become negligent or lazy, or we give ourselves over to things easily, then what we've worked so hard for uh, and what God has given us the grace to attain, we, we can lose very swiftly. And this is how he puts it that the, the devil wastes no time 
you know, cutting off uh, the head of our hope as one would cut off the head of a, a convict when executing him. That's how swift it can be. And so, you know, this isn't to feed us with fear or elicit fear within us. I think it's meant, meant to heighten our awareness of the nature of the spiritual warfare and battle. And so this is why he begins with the quote from Timothy, no man that warreth, no, no one who knows and understands the nature of the spiritual battle is going to do these things, is going to let down his guard any more than a soldier who's in the midst of a battle is going to let down his guard when he knows the enemy is around. All right. Letter E from St. Diaticus. A soul which has not been separated from worldly cares will neither love God genuinely, nor will it loathe the devil as it should, for it is covered by a wearisome veil, the cares of life. Under such conditions, the mind cannot come to a deeper knowledge of itself so that it is enabled to test its own judgments without the risk of error. It is altogether useful then to withdraw from the world. Only a few people are capable of recognizing all of their faults, and in none of their cases is the mind snatched away from the recollection of God. For just as our bodily eyes, when they are healthy, are able to see everything, even the mosquitoes or gnats that fly in the air, but when they are blurred or covered with fluid, see dimly only large objects they may encounter and cannot even perceive small objects by the sense of sight, so it is with the soul. If by prayer the soul diminishes the blindness that afflicts it from love for the world, and then supposes its extremely small faults to be extremely big, it unceasingly sheds tear after tear in great gratitude, for the righteous shall give thanks unto thy name. But if the soul abides in its worldly attitude and commits murder or something worthy of severe punishment, it lightly faces these without upset, while with other faults of a secondary kind, it considers not only unworthy of attention, but often regards certain of them as accomplishments. For this reason, the wretched soul boasts about them without feeling any remorse. So we, we see the, the downward movement that takes place there. The, the, the more that one engages in this spiritual battle, the deeper one's love for God becomes and the hatred for the devil, the more attuned one is going to be to the, the movements of the heart. And it will then be able to test the, the thoughts that come to us with, with greater clarity. And as one does that, the, the conscience becomes more and more acute, aware of what is going on and warns us if we are moving in the wrong, wrong direction, if we're moving away from God. Whereas we, we see here within uh, what Diaticus is saying is that the more that we allow, allow the eyes to become blurred, and if you remember the, the word that they use in English is intellect, but nous in the Greek, which means eye of the heart, eye of the soul, the more that we allow that to be clouded by our sin, 
the, the more dimly we see things, and even to the point that we can begin to see certain things that are evil or sinful as being good. And as he puts in the last line, the wretched soul boasts about them as an accomplishment, that the conscience can be so distorted that what is good seems to be evil and what is evil seems to be good. And uh, this is not probably as uncommon as we imagine it to be, that the state of the soul can reach this point that uh, we give ourselves over more and more to things that should typically make the conscience re rebuke us and giving ourselves over to the more serious things than the smaller things then seem to be good to us, that we, we, we are somehow accomplishing something for ourselves or for others that is good in and through what is, what is truly evil. Anthony. Anthony writes, there is maybe another subtle trick of the devils to remind a person of an objectively good thing, even if worldly, that one tried to attain and just could not. The mind can be flooded with a constant assault of many harmful imaginings and emotions, which have power because it is a good thing that one failed to do. Absolutely. I think there are so many things within the course of our life that end in failure. So many things that we pursue that seem to be good to us or even good on a level and come to nothing, perhaps even after great labor. And uh, the evil one can bring that back up to us and make us begin to mourn over it as a loss or to want to take up those things again. Uh, rather than allowing ourselves to see the providence of God in it, now, while perhaps being good or something that we valued, that we can ruminate over it, you know, that we ruminate on, you know, past possibilities that came to nothing. And we ruminate so much that it keeps us from focusing on present realities and the things that has, God has put right before our eyes. And so you're right. I mean, this is an excellent point because it's, I think, the, the more subtle temptation that we often face on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, that, that kind of memory is a hard one to overcome, you know, especially if we, we labored and gave ourselves over for a long period of time to something that came to nothing or did not end in the way that we imagined we can find ourselves, you know, bogged down in the mire of that. And, you know, by either sadness and regret or anger, aggression, hostility, perhaps at the others who made that an impossibility for us of reaching that end. And uh, whereas if we were able to keep our, our focus on God, if we're maybe able to hold on to that hope, in his promises, then we are able, as it were, to wipe the dust from our feet and move on. Now, that, I've often found that little passage from the gospel curious because people, I think, read that in an aggressive way. You know, wipe the dust from your feet and move on uh, as an act of aggression, you know, and really it's to wipe off, I think, 
what can cling to us, you know, the resentments that can cling to us and prevent us from moving on. And, you know, for apostles whose message was rejected very easily, there could be this kind of condemnation that arises within their hearts of those who refuse to hear what they were bringing to them, refusing the good that they were being offered. And our Lord doesn't want them to be motivated by success, because often they're going to experience rejection in the course of their ministry. And so it becomes very important, I think, not to be given over to the kind of temptation that you talk about in your comment, that it would be very easy to become, you know, saddened by this experience of, of rejection or failure, and then to simply quit trying, you know, no longer to take hold of the grace of God, or even understand that God can work through failure as much as he can work through anything else. You know, perhaps he humbles the mind and the heart or leads us to cling to him alone and not to success even on a religious plane, on the plane of faith, that we, uh, you know, can look at the, the religious life and the pursuit of virtue and uh, evangelization in that way you know, a successful program that draws a lot of people, you know, and if it doesn't draw any people, you can become very, you know, discouraged, or if it takes, you know, many years or decades to see fruit, or maybe we'll never see the full fruit of it altogether, of things that we've done. And so it makes it even more important, uh, I think, to be attentive to the things that you say here. Any other thoughts? Okay. Moving on to St. Barsanufius. A brother asked an elder, if I hear that someone is warring against demons or is in poor health and I feel sympathy for him, tell me, Father, first, is this sympathy good or is it from demons who want to keep me from thinking about my own sins? And secondly, should I mention such a person in prayer when I myself am in more danger and found in greater sins? If the person asks me about this himself or tells me to speak to one of the fathers, what should I do? Indeed, does offering prayer for our neighbor train one who is subject to the passions in love? Wow, what an unusual paragraph and probably something that we never have ever thought about you know, of uh, responding to somebody asking us to pray for them or to give them counsel or to go and ask, you know, someone who's known for their holiness uh, to pray for them. And uh, I think if, you know, we certainly have to start with the, the, the fathers and the lifestyle that they were, were living, that uh, again, you know, that the evil one would use everything to pull them out of this attention to conversion of life and being attentive to what is going on in their own minds and hearts, to redirect their attention to others and their particular struggles with sin and trying to offer them counsel or to pray for them. 
And uh, it's interesting. I think what the, the father, what Barsanufius is telling us here, that there can be these things that are rooted in what on the surface seem to be very good intentions, even holy intentions, that can the evil one can use to draw us away from the spiritual battle that lies within, that we can be hobbled by our own thoughts. You know, our hearts can be embittered, we can be filled with rage, you know, or, or lust or avarice, any, any of, the, uh, of the vices. And a subtle thing such as this, pray for me, Father, or give me a word of counsel to draw me out of this or to help me, can, would be a very powerful thing to uh, deflect our attention to where it should be. How are we to give counsel uh, and from what place do we give that counsel if our own hearts are impure if, or if we're mired in sin ourselves? And, uh, you know, I think for, for elders, certainly as mentioned here among the fathers, but for priests who are often asked that question, you know, it's, it can be uh, a powerful thing to be, become so busy or engaged in the counseling of others, whether it's in the confessional or through conversation, and yet not really truly giving ourselves over to the depth of prayer, to the, the spirit of repentance that is needed, to the penitential life that is needed in order to live the, a life in accord with the will of God. And I think in whatever vocation that we live in this life, we, we know all the subtle ways certainly we can be pulled away from what is at the heart of those vocations. Uh, but I think in our vocation simply as a, a Christian man or woman, to be faithful to our baptismal vows, to live a God-pleasing life, to embrace the grace that God has given to us, that we often will not be engaged fully in that spiritual warfare, thinking that it's not for us, or that we will externalize the, the spiritual life and the life of faith, again, into programs, to, to lectures, you know, to, to be talking about Christ, or to be engaged in uh, charitable works, and yet really have uh, our minds and our hearts disconnected from God. We can be the busiest of souls doing things that on the surface seem to be the most important of things to be done, and yet not have our minds and our hearts where, where they need to be. And, uh, you know, in a day and an age, I think when, when busyness is prized, certainly it's even more of a challenge. But I, I think uh, simply for any one of us that to d deflect our attention from that spiritual battle is often a difficult one to overcome. That we, we will be distracted in one way or another from it. Angela, I'm glad somebody raised their, raised their hand about this one. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I, I'm just thinking about St. Teresa of Avila, who, um, who says that um, we, we should never think about prayer 
or speak about prayer without praying. Right. And, and when I've read her material, she will, she will say certain things and then she will throw in a prayer mm -hmm. uh, after she's said it. And she's been a wonderful model for me. And I, I can just think of that in terms of this situation here, um, that maybe you can do both. <laughs> Right. Well, I think, you know, the same thing would go for preaching, that one would never preach the gospel without prayer and without deep prayer. Uh, because where then is one preaching from? And uh, if you remember, we've talked a couple of times about how the Desert Fathers defined theology as an experiential knowledge of God and arising out of that experience of him in and through faith. And that theology simply done with the intellect or as an intellectual discipline is demonic theology. That, you know, to engage in a kind of speculative theology outside of this real experience of God in and through a life of deep prayer and intimacy with him is to be drawn along by the evil one. And, uh, and so I, I think this is what is being communicated so far. We haven't finished the section yet, but, but communicated by Barsanuthius, that we have to be very careful that the evil one's temptations become, can become more and more subtle and more and more mixed in with religious things. It's sort of like the, the, the weeds that are sown among the, the wheat. And uh, they'll, they even mention the word here, the, 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 wheat, the weed was called the bearded darnel. And it, it looked exactly like wheat, the, 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 the seed. And even when, as it was growing, it you could not uh, determine which was which. And they looked exactly alike, alike. And this is why Jesus says, well, you let them grow together. And then when it comes time for the harvest, you sift out the, 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 weed, the, the weeds from the wheat. And, uh, and, so it can become very difficult for us to distinguish that which is from God and that which is from the evil one, that they can look very much alike. It's sort of the same thing as saying that uh, the devil can appear as an angel of light to us uh, or appear as one of the saints or one of the martyrs. And so in the most subtle way within the thoughts and the temptations that come to our mind, that can be true as well. Things that are holy we have to discern whether or not that is coming from God or from the evil one. Because a lot of people have pursued what on the surface seemed like holy task. Yeah, or, you know, that I should build this church or do, you know, engage in this activity. And it arises, can arise from self-esteem, you know, the, the, simply the, the desire, you know, to be productive, to cultivate something that is of some worth in one's own mind. And again, really be disconnected from anything that has to do with one's relationship with God. And so the, the need to be vigilant, to be attentive to what's going on in one's mind, to discern, to take every thought captive, becomes more and more important as we make our way uh, through the this, this spiritual life and spiritual, spiritual battle. And it's then that we can discern that this is what God wants me to do.
And it's also for this reason that we need spiritual counsel, that we've never progressed so far within the spiritual life that we don't need to put things to the test or to lay it before someone else to see perhaps the things that we, we cannot see on our own. We always will have blind spots and hard spots, no matter how much virtue we have cultivated in our life. And the humble soul is always going to put things to the test, see what its source is. But why don't we move on to the rest of what Barsanufi says here and see if he could flesh it out here for us a bit more. The elder replied, the fathers have instructed younger monks that no one should abandon a corpse of his own to go off and weep for another. It is a mark of those who are perfect that they sympathize with, uh, with another. For the younger monk makes foolish judgments about men and things without infallible discernment, which is why good and advantageous things frequently appear bad and disadvantageous to him. It is beneficial for him, therefore, to ignore all those outside the monastery. And even if he happens to remember that one of them is sick or suffers from some affliction or hears about him from others, let him say, may God have mercy on both him and me. Let a young monk not tell any of the elders to pray for someone, for this involves the exercise of his own judgment. Now, again, this, this might seem very harsh and severe to us. But uh, again, it's, it's acknowledging the fact that early in the spiritual life, uh, a novice in the spiritual life is not going to have this level of discernment, even to gauge whether or not sympathy is arising from this place that God is guiding him, or rather arising from a sympathy that's going to draw him into something that is contrary to the life that God has called him to. And so for a monk in particular, living the life of the monastery, living in obedience to his superior, that you know, to hear a word about somebody outside or, and to become fixated or anxious about his or her life can be enough to draw him away from the, the obedience of the life. And for the monks, this word corpse, you'll see in the coming pages comes up over and over again having died to the world and died to self clarifies things for them. Why would a corpse give advice to somebody who's, who's living? That you've died in making the decision to enter into the monastery. You've died to the world in order that you might live to Christ and live to him alone. And, uh, and so for, in particular for a monk, this is how they are thinking of things. Now, again, for us, you know, not living into the monastery, we, we still are not, we are to be dead to the world in the sense of dead to the things that are fallen or corrupt and uh, dead to the things that lead us away from, from God or lead us into sin. And so this level of, of discernment or this level of understanding that we can lack discernment on a pro profound level means that we, we don't allow ourselves to be drawn along by every feeling, every emotion, every thought that we have. There's a lot that can provoke those feelings of sympathy and empathy within us. And, uh, you know, those, you know, who are priests, 
or those who work in a field where they uh, have to, where they work with other people who do know great suffering, can be physicians, psychologists, you know, uh, that they have to be very careful about the movements of their own minds and their hearts, you know, and how they empathize with what the other person is going through. And in psychology, for example, they talk a lot about counter-transference, you know, what, what the experience or what the words and actions of the analysand gives rise to within themselves that often what the, the person who on the couch is saying or how they're expressing it, what they're going through feeling will evoke something very deep and intimate within the heart of the analyst. And so they have to, in some ways, analyze their own thoughts and emotions and be attentive to them. So they aren't simply responding to the, their own emotional reaction to what the other is saying. They have to suspend judgment in a sense to be attentive to what the other is saying and what the other is going through and listen to it on as deep a level as possible and not allow their own feelings and emotions to blur their vision. And I think something similar is being said here that, you know, what happens to us on an effective level, sympathy, empathy, can be tied to things that we are struggling with in our own life and that have not been healed in our own life, spiritually or emotionally. And so when somebody asks us to do something or engage that reality about them, we have to be careful that we are not simply responding to what it evokes within our own hearts. And for a young novice entering into a monastery, it's going to be very easy for his mind and his heart to be drawn back to the individuals that he knows in the world. When in reality, he's to have died to the world in order to give himself over fully to Christ. But on a broader level, I think this speaks to, to all of us. You know, because in our day, the, the affective level of the spiritual life, which, which is genuine, you know, that we are human beings, you know, we have emotions, we experience desire, but we, we also have the responsibility to be attentive to those things and scrutinize them. And because, you know, our feelings might be strong and they might even speak a certain truth to us, but we cannot let them determine alone how we act that not only is reason and intellect to come into play, but also our prayer life, that we allow God to guide us and direct us. And also, you know, having a spiritual father or spiritual mother to guide us as well, so that we can look at those feelings and see where they're really coming from. It never ceases to surprise me how astute the fathers were, how well they knew the workings of the human mind and heart, the emotions, and how all these things can affect us and the way that we relate to God and others. And finally, Barsanuvia says, if he wishes, let him simply mention to the elder that such and such a person is afflicted, 
And when he hears this, the elder will, of course, pray in the spirit for the sick person. If someone should ask you to speak about him to an elder, say the words you were commanded to say. And when you pray, say, Lord, forgive us or protect us in this circumstance. Sympathy for others on account of your love of God is not yet in your domain if you are a neophyte. When a thought about someone concerns you, then ask and learn what your duty and obligation are. So empathy and sympathy can draw us in a very powerful way into something that we might not be prepared to engage. And this should, again, give us a good sense of what formation, I think, of the clergy or should be, that, uh, and how formation should take place. Because you come out of seminary, you know, many are in their late 20s and perhaps haven't been exposed to the, the teachings of the fathers at all and haven't really been formed in such a way that they are attentive to their own emotional life, their own needs and desires, how they experience them, the kinds of thoughts that they have. Like, for example, within, again, uh, psychoanalysis, in the training for it, and uh, one who, who's in the training has to undergo their own analysis. And so they go through the experience of analysis themselves, seven, 10 years before they would engage in this process with another, that they would have experiential knowledge of what it is to go through analysis. All the feelings that come to the surface, all the memories, all the, the contradictory thoughts, the feelings, positive or negative that they might have directed towards the analyst. And so even in the secular world and secular psychology, they have this sense of a deep, the deep training and experience that an analyst should have. And when we think about the, the spiritual life and those who are, in, are given charge of the care of souls, what, what is that formation? to look like? Is it merely, again, intellectual, involving, you know, speculative, engaging in speculative theology, or even st studying history, or, you know, studying, you know, doing, you know, scriptural studies and things such as that, uh, but disconnected from this deep kind of interior work? What should take place first? You know, one wonders that if there should be something more like an extended novitiate that in, involves this immersion in the form, spiritual formation that we see uh, in the fathers before the, or, or alongside of the academic work that is being done. Uh, because otherwise, what is one fit to do if you have not engaged in this yourself? You know, we've often talked about this before, you can't give what you don't have. And so how is it that you can discern what is going on in another person's life that can be uh, wrapped in chaos or sorrow or, you know, sufferings that have been experienced over the course of decades? What kind of spiritual counsel can one give? Or if they've been afflicted by passions, 
over the course of years. What, what kind of counsel can one give unless you've engaged in that battle yourself for many years? And so the, the advice given to neophytes or novices in the monastery is to avoid it altogether hand, or hand it over to your spiritual elder, but do that in a spirit of obedience, not taking it upon yourself to respond to those coming to the monastery. And, you know, I think in our day and age, especially with, you know, social media, you know, everybody's an advice giver, you know, on just about every subject. And that's true of the spiritual, spiritual life as well. And the advice of the fathers is really slow things down. Don't necessarily jump to answer every question that is put to you about faith or about the spiritual life or a particular spiritual struggle. It would be better, I think, for those in the care of souls to say, I need to pray and fast about this, come back at another time, than to offer spiritual counsel from the top of their head that seems to be good at that moment. Any thoughts on the writings of Barsanufius? No, but that's a great way to sum it up, I think, Father. Just the way you said there, the last sentence, really, uh, in your comments there were really uh, powerful, quite a powerful statement. Yeah, I think, you know, we've been drawn, you know, I, I don't want to be the critic. You know, I think when it comes to seminary formation, I, I think what gives rise to it is my own experience of seminary. Now, I went to a fine seminary and it was a run by religious, by Benedictines. So there, there was a connection to the spiritual tradition, but not as the core or the center of it. I think what we've moved to is a more academic model uh, that is surrounded somewhat with the spiritual life or, you know, you know, certainly the things that one would expect seminarians to do, the divine office, mass, go to confession, but not necessarily engaging in the signs of the fathers or the art of arts, you know, the, spirit, the spiritual life. You know, I, I, I've been reading these things for 30 years and I'm a neophyte when, when it comes to reading them. And every time I read them, I read, I come across something that I never considered before or where I hear where somebody in the group comments on it. It's like, I, I never read it that way. And, you know, so I think how we approach the spiritual life, you know, whether, whether you know, we're lay Christians living in the world or priests or monks, you know, we're still called to engage deeply in this relationship with Christ, but also the interior spiritual warfare that the entire spiritual tradition teaches us about, but is often neglected. So a lot to, to think about there this evening. And, you know, a lot of those statements were, they're heavily weighted and, I don't want us to go to extremes 
here, you know, and or overgeneralize things. And sometimes I have a tendency to do that. And so to think about what we've read and come back to it, and we'll finish up next time this hypothesis and you know, hopefully go get to a even greater clarity than what we, we have. You know, I think when I get excited about something that the fathers are writing, I have that tendency to overgeneralize. So I, I don't want to do that, uh, but it is very powerful. I have to, to say their, their insights you know, are incomparable, I think, to anything that we find in modern day spiritual writing or in modern day psychology. So when we wrap things up there tonight, it's almost 8.30 rather than going on to another section. And we'll pick up next week. And well, we praise always our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you all. Very much.